0: You are listening to Ukraine 242. We bring you interview subjects from all walks of life in wartime in Ukraine. Thanks to all our listeners around the world. Here is your host, Anne Levine.
1: Welcome to Ukraine 242, a weekly show featuring experts on the ground in Ukraine and from around the world, covering myriad issues caused by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. I am Anne Levine, your host and producer from WOMR in Provincetown, Massachusetts. This week, Dr. Tadas Kuzio discussed global ramifications of Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine. Dr. Kuzio is professor of the Department of Political Science at the National University of Kiev, Moila Academy. The interview starts with Putin's visit with North Korea's Kim Jong-un. Dr. Taras Kuzio, welcome to Ukraine 242.
2: Thank you. Thank you for inviting me.
1: On September 13th, Vladimir Putin welcomed North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un in Far Eastern Russia. What are the possible ramifications of this meeting?
2: A country which is supposed to be a superpower or great power is actually going with a begging bolt to Iran and North Korea looking for weapons. Obviously, Russia hasn't got the second best army in the world they now joke that it's the second best army in Ukraine. <laughs> On the more serious side, there's no such thing as a free lunch. So, whatever North Korea and Iran are going to be giving to Russia in drones, weapons, artillery shells, whatever, they are going to want something back from Russia. And that's going to be in more high class technology, especially in the case of Iran, in the nuclear field, in the case of North Korea. More sophisticated weapons technology. and so that I think is potentially very dangerous. Also what we have de facto got is a coalition of four countries, Russia, China, North Korea, and Iran, who are allied against the West. These four countries are determined to fight what they call US dominated unipolar world and change it to a more what they call multipolar world. And so Russia's been quite successful in getting these countries, as as it were, aligned together. And this means that when you have, particularly in the US Republican Party, this idea that you can somehow separate Russia off from China, that's a big mistake, because they are closely aligned already, whether we like it or not. And, And therefore, the idea that somehow you can You know, forget about Russia and then just focus on China and Taiwan is, I think, a misnomer. North Korea is just the last cog in this four grouping. You know, firstly China, then Iran, and now it's North Korea that are lining up to back Russia in its war against Ukraine and the war against the West.
1: You wrote that China, Iran, Belarus, and Armenia all have different motivations for backing the Kremlin, but are united by a common fear of what a Russian defeat in Ukraine might mean. Yeah. Is North Korea part of this? And what, uh, do, you, what do they all yeah. fear?
2: Well, I think different countries fear different things. Um, I don't think the North Korean leaders are so worried if Russia is defeated that their regime will collapse. China is certainly concerned that if Russia is defeated, then this ends its ability to, as it were, take on the West. This uh, anti Western campaign to bring down this, what they call the US led unipolar world. Um, It reflects badly on China in that sense. And also the impact on China is that it's now taking a step backwards about thinking about what it should do with Taiwan. If Russia had been very successful militarily in Ukraine, then there probably already would have been maybe an invasion of Taiwan by the Chinese because um, a Russian success would have shown to the Chinese the West is very weak. It hasn't stood up to Russia. Because the West stood up to Russia and is supporting Ukraine, that's made the Chinese back off Taiwan. I think in the case of leaders who are afraid of a Russian defeat, in the case of Iran, I don't think the Iranian leaders would necessarily be overthrown, although there have been mass protests against them in Iran. I think it's Lukashenko, the leader of Belarus. Lukashenko is certainly worried. It's very unpopular. There was a mass protest against election fraud three years ago, and his regime is only propped up because of Russia. In particular, if Russia is defeated, then I think his regime is going to collapse. And so if Russia is militarily defeated in this Ukrainian counteroffensive, then that's likely to impact upon whether Putin can stay in power. And then that in turn will impact on Belarus another leader that would certainly be out would be the criminal leader of Chechnya Kadyrov is also closely tied to Putin as well Armenia is a, a very different case Armenia is a country that is very closely tied to Russia because of its geography to the west of Armenia is Turkey to the east is Azerbaijan and it feels quite insecure in that part of the world and therefore militarily it's been tied to Russia since the collapse of the USSR in 1991. But at the same time, I don't think that the Armenian prime minister, Pashinyan, would be overthrown if Russia was militarily defeated. Pashinyan has said, and that was probably my comment was related to it, he has said, We don't know what would happen in Armenia if Russia is defeated. And my response would be, nothing. Why would this necessarily be bad for you? Armenia has a democratic system. Belarus is a dictatorship, so they're very different countries. So I actually wrote that it would be good for Armenia if Russia was defeated, because then Armenia could have a more balanced foreign policy between Europe, the US on the one hand, and Russia on the other.
1: You've said that the Polish-Ukrainian alliance is set to become increasingly influential. Is that still happening as time goes on?
2: The Polish-Ukrainian reconciliation, which has been taking place for decades, has been largely ignored, even though it's as important as what happened between France and Germany after World War II, two countries that had been at war many times, got over their differences, and together they created the European Union. And the Polish-Ukrainian reconciliation has been as successful Two major countries in in the east of Europe who in the past had very bloody conflicts, but um, have basically resolved their issues since, I would say, the 1970s, 80s, for definite, when you had the rise of the solidarity movement in Ukraine and then Ukrainian independence. What we have today is that Poland is a country that, sees an existential threat happening on its borders with the invasion of ukraine Um, everybody in poland there's nobody dissents from this everybody in poland understands that if ukraine was to be militarily defeated they would be next so they see the fight in ukraine as their fight and hence the very close personal relationship between ukrainian president zelensky and polish president duda Also, when we're looking ahead, as it were, when this war is over and we hope it's over as soon as possible, Poland and Ukraine will probably have two of the best armies in Europe. Poland is already purchasing lots of new military equipment. So the war is a great advertisement for American and Western European military technology. It's a very poor advertisement for Russian military technology. So Poland is beefing up its army. The Polish military expenditure is set to grow to about 4% of GDP. That would put it on a par with the US, which spends about the same, 4 or 5%. And if you compare that to other NATO, there are 31 NATO members, and only about 12 of those NATO members spend over 2% of GDP on the military, which they're supposed to do. So many NATO members don't. France, for example, which is supposed to be a great power, spends just under 2%, about 1.9%. So with Poland set to spend 4% plus and ordering all this military equipment, and then within a close alliance with Ukraine, which currently in this war has 1 million people under arms and has completely changed its military culture to a kind of a NATO military culture, and Ukraine will have the most battle-hardened and battle-experienced army in, in Europe, that is going to mean that uh, Ukrainian and Poland will have by far the two most professional, biggest and well-trained and well-experienced armies in Europe. And so I think what this will mean will be a psychological shift in NATO from kind of Western to Eastern Europe. And which is already in some ways happening because the hardliners in dealing with Russia tend to be, already be the Poland, the three Baltic states of Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, and the four Scandinavian countries of Finland, Sweden, Denmark, and Norway, together with Britain. That's the, shall we say, hardliners on this war with Russia. And Poland is making sure that it's going to be a leading military power in NATO as time goes on.
1: Vladimir Putin hoped his full-scale invasion of Ukraine would mark the dawn of a new Russian empire. What has Vladimir Putin's full-scale invasion of Ukraine actually wrought so far?
2: Well, Russia was already a declining great power prior to the invasion. I mean, if you look at the countries in the in BRICS like um, India and China, India and China are rising powers whereas Russia was already a declining power. What the invasion has done has made that decline even faster, Um, both in in terms of the Russian economy, um, in terms of Russian exports. I mean, the two major Russian exports were energy and weapons. Russia has lost its major European market for energy, which was 40% of the Russian government budget. It's lost that for good now. It never expected that to happen. And who the hell is going to be buying Russian weapons now? I mean, they've been shown to be very, very poor quality in Ukraine. So you have a lot of countries now cancelling arms agreements, arms Mm. contracts with Russia. Russia is not an exporter of technology like China is. There is no Russian equivalent of China's cell phone, Huawei. There is nothing like that. Russia doesn't do that. And a lot of the Russian middle classes, the IT sector, they all fled from Russia in the fall of last year when Putin organized the mobilization of troops for his army. So the economy is down. Russia's lost a lot of its uh, support. Within the former USSR, where you have 15 former republics, only really Belarus votes with Russia at the United Nations. No, the country does. They usually abstain, like uh, Kazakhstan or Armenia. And so Russia's Influence, because the Russian leadership has always seen uh, the former USSR as, as its kind of exclusive sphere of influence. Russia's lost that now. Um, in the case of Ukraine, the invasion and the war crimes and the, the bloody way that Russia's done the war has turned Ukrainians completely against Russia. This is now a full-scale divorce by Ukrainians from Russia. Um, This was not the case, you know, in 2014 or earlier. Russia's military aggression has turned Ukrainians against. So I think the whole invasion has actually backfired. And then on top of all of that, Russia's military has been smashed by this war. I mean, the number of uh, things which have been destroyed. I mean, Russia's lost over 2,000 tanks, for example. It's it's lost, you know, over 200,000 casualties. So with a relatively small amount of Western financial support, I mean, we're talking only 5% of the U.S. military budget being given to Ukraine. Uh, The Russian military has been decapacitated. I mean, it's just been reduced. And I think on top of that, the very poor quality of the Russian army and the poor performance of the Russian army doesn't give Russia a good image in the world as a kind of a great power. So I think it's very truthful to now say that in the Chinese-Russia relationship, Russia is the younger brother now, not China. China's now the big guy on the block. China's still a rising power. It's it's got more powerful military forces than Russia. Um, And and more importantly, China hasn't got the massive levels of corruption that Russia has. One of the reasons the Russian army is so poor is just Russia's a mafia state. It's a very corrupt country. So, A lot of the the things which are supposed to be sent to troops are stolen. So I think all of those things have been brought out. It's as though the invasions opened up a Pandora's box. And we can now see the real Russia.
1: This is Anne Levine. I am speaking with Dr. Tadas Kuzio professor of the Department of Political Science at the National University of Kiev, Moila Academy. He is associate research fellow at the Henry Jackson Society and the winner of the 2022 Peterson Literary Prize for his book, Russian Nationalism and the Russian-Ukrainian War, Autocracy, Orthodoxy, Nationality. Dr. Tara we hear about oligarchs. Can you explain precisely what an oligarch is?
2: You have oligarchs from all of these former communist countries, super rich businessmen, usually guys who have assets in the billions, not millions, so billions of dollars. And they are always seeking influence through election campaigns, with presidents, through control of media assets. I think to understand who they are is to see how they made their money. And I think here there are two groups. One group are white collar oligarchs, and they are no different to what we have had in the West, you know, white collar criminals. Those kind of white collar oligarchs would have made money by insider connections, able to privatize businesses because of insider contacts, like, for example, Khodorkovsky. He's a white-collar oligarch. I mean, nobody's ever accused him of killing people. He made his money in that Wild West transition to capitalism in the 1990s when there were very weak laws and you could abuse those laws. He spent time in Siberian concentration camps because of Putin, but I've never heard of anybody accusing Khodorkovsky of killing anybody. The second oligarchs group would be people who rose up through the ranks using bloodshed, who became oligarchs because they murdered people and killed off their competitors. And those guys certainly exist in those former communist countries, and those are the ones who are usually the most unpleasant, and the ones that um, usually do the most dirty work, have had blood on their hands. Uh, the others are, are, are no different to what we have in the West. I mean, they've just tweaked the system in their favor, shall we say. Prigozhin, for example, would be one of us. People who rose up through the ranks using bloodshed. Um, when Putin came to power 23 years ago, he basically lined up all of these oligarchs who made you know, lots of corrupt money in the 1990s he said, you can keep all your money that you've stolen, but you now work for me, and you do what I tell you. And that was the deal. And, it, you know, if, if you didn't agree with that, you either went to jail, like Khodorkovsky, or you had to run to London, like Berezovsky. Prigozhin was one of the guys who said, yeah, that's fine with me, you know, I'll do stuff for you, like create this mercenary group, Wagner... And in return, you allow me to continue to make loads of corrupt money. Prigozhin broke that contract when he launched his mutiny against Putin. And so it was Prigozhin that really broke that unwritten deal that all of these corrupt oligarchs had for the last two decades. And Putin never forgives. He will always go for revenge. In that sense, you know, he's been compared always to a a mafia boss.
1: Do you think that Lukashenko, the leader of Belarus, and Prigozhin
2: are perceived similarly by Russia? Lukashenko is different in the sense that, you know, he's a crony that's been kept in power by Russia. And so he's only in power today because of Russian military support. He's a local puppet, shall we say. You know, he's a Timpop dictator who's a local puppet. And he's also somebody who has managed to put the highest number of political prisoners in jails in Europe, more than than existed in the USSR even. So he lost the elections three years ago. Then he brutally repressed protesters with the help of Russia. So he's a very unpleasant guy. He's a self-declared president, and he's clinging to power only because of Putin's support.
1: So his fears are more about being part of the whole system, including Russia, that would go down, as opposed to meeting an end like Prigozhin did.
2: Well, there are at least two battalions, so about 2,000 troops of Belarusians who are fighting for Ukraine against Russia. And in the event of a repeat of what happened three years ago with mass protests against Lukashenko those two battalions have said they will return to Belarus and take on the regime. And in that situation, Lukashenko, I don't know what would happen to him. The, the Belarusian Lukashenko regime is kept in power by brute force, able to smash and, and repress peaceful protesters. But if those protesters down the road have the backing of 2,000 battle-hardened Belarusian volunteers who come over from Ukraine, then Lukashenko could actually end up very much like Ceausescu back in 1990, who was executed after the Romanian revolution.
1: One other thing I'd like to ask is, what position do families living in occupied Ukraine have
2: toward the war? So in the occupation, inevitably, you're going to get some people working with the occupation authorities, the Russian occupation authorities, usually for money, rarely for ideology. Usually it's usually a money money thing or it's a power kick for them. You know, prior to the occupation, they were working in the supermarket. After the occupation, they get to have some official position. But uh, majority of the people have usually been helping the Ukrainians in various ways This is one of the problems that Russia's had. We've we've watched these movies from, I don't know, World War II and elsewhere, where we look at these partisans, and they're usually like tough guys, um, you know, hiding in the forest. But the problem that Russia's had is that a partisan can be anything from a 90-year-old grandmother to a teenager. One incredible example was when... Part of Kiev region was occupied in the early part of last year, at the beginning of the invasion. One of the best trackers of Russian military transports was an 85-year-old grandmother. The Russian soldiers couldn't think of her as being likely um, a military spotter, a partisan, and she was ringing through on her mobile phone to Kiev, and then those Russian soldiers were getting flattened by artillery. So the problem that Russian occupation forces have is that they don't know who to trust in the regions they occupy because anybody can be a partisan today you know the comparison with World War 2 is a bit false because now all you need to be a anti-Russian occupation partisan is a mobile phone that's all you need you can take photographs you can send various uh, bits of information and, and this gives the Ukrainian military great intelligence on what the russians are doing or giving food or giving shelter to partisan movements or ukrainian special forces giving information intelligence all, all of that there are countless stories there was a grandmother in kharkiv during the occupation last year Russian soldiers came knocking on her door and they were begging for food because typically they hadn't been supplied so she said okay no problem I'll make you some dumplings, some pierogi. But she forgot to tell them that she put rat poison in. So 15 soldiers were killed. You hear countless of examples of these stories. Other grandmothers will be secretly at night knitting camouflage nets for various partisans. So I would say the absolute majority are like that. And you saw that when Harki was liberated in September of last year and when Kherson was liberated in November of last year, how people came on the streets. They are also happy to see the Ukraine liberation because of the way they're just so badly treated by Russian troops. I mean, it's not just a question of imprisonment, torture, raping. The United Nations has documented rapes in Ukraine of children from the age of four to grandmothers at the age of 82. That's the age range of the rapes undertaken by Russian soldiers in Ukraine. But also just the mass looting. If they haven't stolen something, they will try and destroy it. Because many of these Russian soldiers are from the poorest regions of Siberia. And they were shocked to see in Ukraine, in the villages, houses with indoor plumbing. They never had seen running water, showers, toilets, in their own regions in Siberia. And um, that made them very angry. So. They stole a lot of washing machines. I guess they didn't quite realize that washing machines need electricity and running water. (laughs) In Russia, there is no civil society because it's a a dictatorship. There is no volunteer movement, And some of the videos you see, families are happy to receive from the government a sack of potatoes or a sack of onions when their husband or brother have been killed in the war. Human life is surely worth more than a sack of potatoes. But in the case of Ukraine, you have a huge volunteer movement, and it's involved in all sorts of areas, including women's rights, children's rights, helping civilians who were trapped in the war. Uh, You have Ukrainians involved in helping the military build, for example, drones. And so in that sense, it's, it's it's very much an army which is linked to the population. There's no disconnect between the two. And one of the interesting aspects of this war is the degree to which you have a kind of a horizontally based Ukrainian volunteer movement, civil society and army versus a vertically structured Russian society and and army.
1: Dr. Kuzio, I have thoroughly enjoyed this
2: conversation. Thank you very much for inviting me. I hope that, uh, as we all I'm sure hope, that this war ends as quickly as possible. Thank you, thank you for inviting me.
1: It was interesting discussing the global political ramifications of the invasion of Ukraine with Dr. Kuzio. Next week, my conversation with him continues about the effects of the invasion inside Ukraine. This is Ukraine 242. I am Ann Levine from WOMR in Provincetown, Massachusetts. Editing by Ursula Rudenberg. Additional editing and production by Michael Levine. To see pictures of our guests and to access our entire library of shows, visit Ukraine242.com. Join us next week for part two of our conversation with Dr. Taras Kuzia. Thank you for tuning in.